You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted that we get to spend the next hour together taking a tour of the arts. The arts that we see when we go to a play or a concert or attend a festival or even read a book is the tippy-tippy top of the arts pyramid. And holding up the bit that we see are a myriad of other arts workers, technicians, editors, administrators, funding organisations, consultants, designers, whose foundation and expertise hold up what we behold in the spotlight And I like, from time to time, to disappear behind the curtain and chat to some of the people we don't see. On this week's Arts Tour, we are doing just that, to chat with an arts consultant, an arts funder and an artistic director. Before we get underway, a reminder, very exciting, about two events happening this weekend. Tonight is the first, first Friday for a long time. And whilst it won't be quite the drinking, snacking, mingling event of the before times, it is a chance to amble around the North Village Arts District and pop into All Street Studios to chat with their resident artists and see the new show in their central atrium featuring the work of Jean and Dareth Guttermuller. And tomorrow night is Talking Horse Productions annual fundraiser, Broadway Fools, a mixture of song, comedy, improv, and a famous scene from Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, featuring Skylark Bookshop's Alex George, playing Lady Bracknell in a wig and a very fetching shade of red lipstick, and yours truly, sporting a dapper cravat and silky waistcoat, playing the lovelorn Jack Worthing. You can find the link to that show on the TalkingHorseProductions.org website. But before all that hilarity, let's head out on today's arts tour. First stop, the arts consultant. A year ago, nobody had a clear-cut answer about how best to navigate an arts world with no arts. And now we stand on the more optimistic cusp of wondering how best to navigate at the upcoming year of a hybrid realm of some in-person and some virtual arts. Of course, all any organisation's leader can do is try their best with limited resources and, in all likelihood, fewer employees than a year ago. But there are people, like my next guest, who are on hand to guide arts organisations as they navigate these choppy waters. Sarah Leonard was on Speaking of the Arts twice last year, talking about her work as an arts consultant, advising organisations on best practices in arts marketing and audience development. And I'm delighted that she's back with us on this week's show to give us an update on what is happening in the arts beyond our own community. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I am curious how the past year has been for Sarah Leonard Consulting. On one hand, you are needed now more than ever, but on the other, arts organizations are struggling to pay their rent. How busy have you been over the last year? 
That's a great question. You know, it's been a really mixed bag. I would say the main thing is that the work has changed. And you're right, a lot of organizations, I do think, need an extra brain to help them think through this, somebody to keep track of the research or best practices or what's happening, what are the trends, because it's just more than they can handle while they're also trying to keep the doors open. Um, But it tends not to be something that organizations are really keen to spend money on right now. So a lot of the work I've been seeing, some has been with organizations, but a lot has been either offering um, webinars or other professional development to associations of organizations, or doing some one-on-one work with executive directors of small organizations who have just hired me in kind of a coaching capacity to be that extra mind um, for them as they're going forward, someone to ask questions to, bounce ideas off of, things like that. So when you've done these seminars and webinars, what are you hearing from arts leaders? What are they asking for help with? A lot of the questions right now, probably not surprisingly, pertain to reopening and what that's going to look like. Uh, Will my audiences ever come back is a question that I hear a lot. If I open, will they come And frankly, I'd rather have them asking that question than just assume that if we reopen, they will come because it's a more complex situation than that. I think there's a lot going on. All that has happened in the last year has really thrown a lot of our organizational norms up into the air. And as I think you and I spoke about before, I think that's really exciting in some ways because there's a lot of opportunity to be found in that, to get rid of some habits or things we just accepted that maybe weren't working very well for us. But it's also a bit nerve wracking. None of us has a crystal ball. And so trying to cast our minds forward and think, you know, what is the best way to plan? How do I budget right now? What should I be advocating for to my board of directors? These questions are just coming up over and over again. And so I'm trying to help organizations think through where are we now? What is this going to look like? And the answer that I'm not sure any of them want to hear, but I think is reality, is that 2021 is also going to be a year of rapid change and iteration and trying and tweaking as we gauge our audience's preparation to return to our venues and as we try to straddle if we are going to as an organization that live hybrid divide or return to live and making those decisions on an organizational basis. Would you rather right now be the arts leader of a large organization with lots of resources or a small, nimble arts organization? The word nimble has probably been the word I've used most with clients in the last (laughs) month. I would rather be the leader of a small organization, to tell you the truth. And while, of course, the resources of a large organization are advantageous, what I have seen over the last year is that the organizations that have some of the organizations, I I should qualify that, that have weathered this storm most successfully are the small to mid-sized organizations that are really deeply rooted in their communities, who understood the role that they played in the lives of their audiences or those they serve, who really had a home and people who cared about them and supported them and weren't going to let them go rather than those that are seen as too big to fail, maybe who have actually had to furlough maybe hundreds of staff for an extended period of time. Now, of course, 
the grass is always greener. So if I were truly in a small organization, I might say yes. But if I had that money, just think of what I could do um, in a larger organization. So it's you could go either way. But personally, I would go for the small organization because of the the great potential for strong community connection and the ability to turn on a dime to try things and iterate more quickly to say, whoops, that didn't work. Let's turn left rather than gosh, we have all these contracts. We've done all these things. This money is sunk. We kind of have to stay this course. How many of those furloughed workers, particularly thinking about the performing arts in large cities, how many of those furloughed workers are still there when things reopen? I mean, people have had to find other jobs or or retrain. Is there going to be an issue with technical and creative staff available? It's going to be interesting to see. I have artist friends who have left the field out of necessity in the last year. People that were truly making a living as performers who have retrained as technical project managers, you know, because they just needed a stable source of income. In terms of the administrative staff, some will come back, but there's the potential for a real loss of institutional memory. Um, And maybe this is a moment where if we have to create a new way forward, that's not totally detrimental, but we have a lot to learn from our histories too. We don't want to lose track of who we've served and how and what we've tried before. I think the PPP loans have been instrumental for a lot of cultural organizations to keep at least a core of staff on board. Um, I know a number of organizations that have taken advantage of that, but, but it will be different. And I think it's one of the things I'm really cautioning organizations about as they move forward is to not expect to jump right back into the same level of production productivity or something like that if they only are going to come back with two-thirds of their staff. So as we're planning as organizations, we have to be looking at those stair steps. What's going to be enough revenue that we can bring the next staff person back? And then what programming options does that open up? It's going to have to be this sort of slow and steady process for a lot of folks, I think. Some may be in a position to just bring people back wholesale, but until we see how ticket revenue dollars are, where the foundation and private funding sources kind of come down and intervene uh, to try to help arts organizations. I think it will be, or we are wise to make it sort of a stair-stepped process. But yes, we will be missing some things. I don't think we've lost a really well-trained body of people who want to work in the arts and are prepared to. I think those people will still be there. I think some may leave the necessity jobs to return to the arts in some cases, but in other cases, they may prefer a, a different environment or stability than the arts are sometimes able to afford. So in the talks you've done, I know you did one called What is Working Now in the World of Arts Marketing. So what is working now in the world of arts marketing? What are some of the positive things that people are doing and that are working? In a lot of ways, it's really not different from what's worked before. It just is in theory or in sort of at the principal level. Where it becomes different is in the how, in practice. So it has always been the case that Treating our audiences as people has worked with all the complexity and simplicity that that brings, that really understanding what our own organizational identities are, what makes our people tick, what makes our institution tick, 
what are the interests and values of the people in our community who we desire to serve? And where do those intersect? Those three questions of who, where, and why do they care, uh, which I ask so often, I've been given t-shirts that have that printed (laughs) on it. Um, I think still ring true. What we know now is that some of that why do they care, I think has clarified in the minds of our audiences. And, And I remember we talked about this last summer as well. This idea that we are looking to our cultural organizations to help us connect with other people. We're looking to our cultural organizations for fun, for enjoyment, for relaxation, and especially coming out of a year of really deep stress, not just sort of situational peaks, but really deep stress. I think any ways that we can identify as arts and cultural organizations, what are the needs in our community and how do we fit them? One of the things I've been talking to folks about is something called jobs to be done theory. And I can't remember if we talked about this before, but it's this idea that comes out of Harvard, Clayton Christensen, the, the gentleman who developed it and who passed away not too long ago. But the idea is that people don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole, Right. And so how do we identify to our audiences and sort of demonstrate to our audiences that we are the best option available to get you the quarter inch hole you need in your life? So we have to figure out what their quarter inch hole is. What is that thing they really need? And then how do we speak to that as cultural organizations? So those organizations that are very much um, driven by individuals' artistic vision to the exclusion of consideration of the community, where is the community, may struggle during this time. I think we are going to need to be engaged and tuned in and consistently taking the temperature of our communities, both in terms of the content, uh, and I'm not an advocate of letting audience drive specific content choices. I am an advocate of considering your audience when making your content choices uh, and considering your community. One of the things that we had talked about last time and one of the areas of your expertise is is audience development. And so as we're thinking about keeping our existing audiences engaged, giving them the quarter inch hole that they want, we, we've been able to engage a different group of people who have been able to access our virtual content. So we have all these new audiences too. Now that we're maybe coming back to partially in-person world, how do we bridge those two audiences? It's a great question and one that a lot of my clients are grappling with right now. There are a few pieces. One is I'll say on the, the national level, and I think I hinted at this last time we talked, but the data is out now that does show that a higher percentage of our digital audiences have been people of color than the percentage of live audiences. So for a number of organizations, they've seen an ability to make progress on some of their diversification goals as well during this time, which only adds to this heightened sense of importance of how do we bridge this. And we're foolish if we think that anyone who's local who engage virtually will necessarily come live. So what I'm encouraging folks to do is really break it down to do what we call segmenting your audience. Our old segments may not serve us too well anymore, but break these folks down into maybe first the categories, for example, are virtual attendees who are local, but who hadn't engaged with us previously, virtual attendees who are not local, local prior attendees who engage with us virtually, 
and local prior attendees who did not engage with us virtually. So if we just broke it down into those four groups already, we have to speak to them very differently. Some haven't given us the time of day for a year, as far as we know, but prior to that, we're very engaged. So how are we courting them now to bring them back, to remind them what we offered them to help and get them back into our seats and engaging with us? And we know on the whole that arts audiences are saying that they have missed being in the audience. It's something that they want to come back to, which is really good news. But then we have those those troubling groups uh, that have only engaged with us virtually. What do we do with those? I think we want to come at it from two directions. One is to the extent that we have the resources and the capacity to invite those local virtual people back into the room with us, but to also really consider what does it look like if our organization has a hybrid offering? Do we have enough audiences who we aren't sure if they're going to come back into the room live with us, if they started virtually or if they started in seat, but maybe for whatever reason, prefer the virtual experience. And then we have those long distance folks. How many do we have? What kind of a percentage of our audience is that? Do we have the technical capacity in-house? Or is that something that's going to be a real budget buster for us to try to continue to offer that? So I'm really encouraging folks to think about what their breaking points are. How much revenue has to be coming from a certain segment in order for it to be viable for you to do that. Or you can take a more proactive approach and say, we've been reaching new audiences. We want to really incorporate this into the mission and identity of our organization. So how are we going to keep building our virtual audience while also getting our live audience back into the room? What will that look like? So the calculus is going to have to be a little bit different organization to organization. But I think the trap right now is going back to the ways that we engaged our audiences a year ago, a year and two months ago, and assuming that that will work right. Because our audiences have changed, our organizations have changed, our communities have changed. In addition to COVID and all of its implications, we've had a major social justice movement, renewed consciousness regarding racial injustice. We've had a lot of political unrest. All of these things continue. And are shaping our communities and our organizations, and rightfully so. So, how do we um, how do we find new ways to speak to folks, both in terms of content, but then also, yeah, are you are you a virtual person? What's that going to look like? Are we going to try to engage those folks as donors, even if we don't ex- continue to offer content virtually? What's that balance going to be? And like I said, it's going to be different from one organization to the next, but we can't, we can't treat them all the same. And I think because this is so new to us, making assumptions is really dangerous. So I'm also encouraging folks to, even if it's just on a very small scale, do some things like virtual focus groups. And I say focus groups and people think they have to have years and years of training. And there certainly are wonderful focus group facilitators who do, but You can also get eight people on a Zoom call and just ask them some questions. The nice thing about that, as opposed to a survey, is that it lets you ask follow-up questions. It lets you realize if your question's been misinterpreted. And you can get some conversation going to understand a little bit about how people want to engage with you. One of my clients I was speaking to about this the other day is a choral organization. And they've expanded from being in the Atlanta metro area and having singers 
exclusively from that region to having singers in 26 states and on five continents. Fantastic. Which is just brilliant, right? They've done such a wonderful job. But now there's this question of, do they want to keep singing with us? Or were we a stopgap while their local choir was shut down? And we just don't know unless we ask, right? Maybe they've decided this is wonderful. Maybe it gave them a chance to sing with a choir for the first time or the first time in decades because they relocated. Or maybe it's been a temporary measure. Um, In addition, the weather's getting nicer. And so folks are able to do things outside more and we may see a decline in our virtual attendance there. So there are a lot of variables to, to kind of track right now. And I think trying to break your audience down into pieces, ask questions. And I think this is going to be a season of asking good questions of the right people repeatedly to understand as things shift and change in people's minds, when will that that switch flip that says, okay, now for me, for Sarah, I'm ready to go back live into an audience. The other thing we know is that that switch is in different places for different people. So it's not just going to be all at once. People are who have previously been quite cautious are ready to go back into live performance venues. So there are a lot of factors. So segment, break it down and figure out what you need to know from whom in order to make the best decisions you can, and then be prepared to make those decisions over and over again for a while as we see where this settles out. According to projections by one online cultural data analyst, exhibit-based organizations may be back to 94% of their 2019 numbers by late fourth quarter this year, and performance-based organizations at 92%. What do you think of those numbers? Do they seem realistic? That seems optimistic to me. Right. I have to say, I, I, I just listened. I was like, wow, I hope that's true. That would be spectacular. Uh, I, I just don't know. I don't know that I can trust those numbers is what I mean. What I think is happening right now is that there's a surge of hopefulness, which is wonderful. We need that just as humans, I think. But I think as organizational leaders, we're going to have to be a little bit more measured and, you know, let's have the plan for that, but let's also have some other plans so that if that doesn't quite pan out, we're not stuck having counted on revenue numbers like that for our budgets. What I'm seeing right now is that a lot depends on vaccine uptake rates. The good news is I think Things have really sped up with the rollout in many places. So that's good. Many arts audiences on the whole are pro-vaccination and inclined to become vaccinated themselves. But I still think there are going to be nerves. You know, even once I've received both vaccinations, the first time I eat in a restaurant indoors might feel strange. It's And will I be ready to go do that and do all these other things simultaneously, or will it be a stair-stepping process? Will going to a nutcracker with that many people in December feel right? You know, one of the things we've seen throughout this process is that people repeatedly think that everything will be normal in six months. Uh, It doesn't matter when you ask them. In six months, it will be normal. So I wonder if there's a little bit of that coming into play, especially if we're looking at intention data. 
because what we have seen throughout this is that, um, well, we need to know that and it's good to know, um, intent does not always equate behavior. So that's why I think we're going to need to keep asking these questions repeatedly, uh, and, and kind of track that over time to know what's going to happen there. How do you feel about sitting in a theater again? I think it's going to be, uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I would say it's the first piece. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to it. But I do think it will be a little bit nerve wracking. I'm in that category of folks who's been quite cautious during COVID. And I think we have sort of some internalized expectations and fears now that we're going to have to get past. Maybe I'm willing to go sit in the audience, but what when, what do I do when the person behind me starts coughing? Mm-hmm. Um and the reality is by the time I do that, I will have received both vaccines and I will probably be be pretty safe, but nonetheless not want to contribute to any any surges or things like that coming down the line. So I am looking forward to it. I have a feeling that the first move will be some outdoor performances this summer, and then we'll sort of get back into those spaces. One of the challenges that our organizations have over the next several months and year, I think, is to educate their audience as to how they're keeping them safe and how they're keeping the performers safe, because folks want to know that. And maybe by fall, people will just be ready to roll. Maybe they'll, that really will happen. But right now, that feels hard to see. I do think museums are, or exhibit-based organizations, um, are going to have a bit of an easier time of it. Large ones may need to do things like timed admissions or things like that. But keeping a finger on those psychological components for your audience. What what are they thinking? Because I gave a webinar in a community in Texas where it's kind of been business as usual all year, to tell you the truth. Nothing has really changed there, except that uh, the governor just reopened everything. So now they can really do whatever they want. But that, that's clearly not been the case in Colombia uh, and in our surrounding communities where much more stark measures have been taken. Well, I've been, I've been happy to have the stark measures, I have to say. <laughs> I have too, absolutely. And it's right. And, you know, one of the questions I pose to organizations that are feeling a little like, well, I just want to open anyway or do what I want is, are you ready for the headline? Can you, can't, can you handle the headline if an outbreak happens as a result of your production? Uh, because you have to be ready for that. And there will come a point where if that happens, it will be a fluke and, you know, the appropriate measures would have been taken. But we're not quite there yet, I don't think. Well, thank you so much to Sarah Leonard, arts management consultant, researcher and educator specializing in audience development, strategic planning and leadership in team building. You always have such great insights into the arts world. And I'm always so grateful, Sarah, that you are willing to share them with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We are fortunate in Colombia to have a dedicated Office of Cultural Affairs, which not only advocates for the arts in Colombia, but also channels the city's annual funding support to non-profit arts organisations. And it is at this time of year that arts organisations write their plans for arts activities they would like to have funding for in the following fiscal year, which means six to 18 months in the future. And having written that funding application 11 times, during my Columbia Art League years, 
I know it is hard enough planning what you want to do a year or more in advance in normal times, let alone trying to navigate funding needs and programme opportunities in a pandemic. But luckily, there is someone on hand to answer questions and steer the whole process with the Commission on Cultural Affairs. And she is one of my guests this morning, Manager of the Office of Cultural Affairs. Welcome back, Sarah Dresser. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it is a delight to have you back on the show again. And it seems like arts organisations have an almost impossible task right now, planning for events that won't happen until the end of this year or next year, when we barely know what the situation is going to be in a couple of months. How are you helping them to navigate this crystal ball style planning? Well, that's a very good question. We, you know, we haven't changed our schedule for the funding applications, um, and when the project periods would be. So we're, we haven't altered that. So it's in a way, it's kind of a similar approach that a lot of organizations are used to because many are in the planning mode for what might be happening, you know, six months from now plus. So they're kind of used to thinking ahead. But as you said, you know, we're coming out of this really crazy cycle um, that has just had so many unknowns um, and so many setbacks to plans that were put in place and having to come up with a, a new plan. So yeah, so we, we're flexible in a way, you know, when when a lot of these applicants submit what they are requesting funds for, uh, you know, we know that they might not have every single last detail mm. in place. We were looking maybe for the for the broad strokes. For example, um, the community orchestra is planning their season. They know they're going to have four concerts. Um, they know kind of the themes that they might be exploring. They might not have every single repertoire picked out yet. They might have tentative venues and tentative dates. So we know that there might be some more more big picture things about the project coming in. And then, you know, we have an interim report requirement in the fall. So ideally, you know, by the time all of those details have gotten planned, we have that requirement that organizations must submit their more firmed up plan before the funding then can make its way. I think that this next year is going to be a little a little bit easier for some than this past year because back in April, May of 2020, we were having the deadline for the current cycle we're in right now. So, you know, right after, you know, everything's shutting down, they're trying to submit their application for how are they going to plan their season for the end of 2020 and throughout 2021. So that was a little bit more of a, a hurdle for for organizations that were really, you know, we were all unsure as to. So how did they do that? I mean, what can you write when you're facing complete lockdown? Right. Well, I guess kind of the uh, one of the good things is that within our current process of doing things. We have the application and then we have the interim report requirement and there are contracts for services. So there's always been a, a section of our contract saying if there's any significant changes to your project that has been approved, that must go before our Commission on Cultural Affairs for approval to keep the funding, but this project element might have changed significantly. So we plan to kind of do that with maybe most everyone. It just depended so when they, we had all those interim reports coming in, I put together then my report to the commission saying, you know, here's what they submitted as their plan, but here's the new plan. So everything then went really back before the commission for them to approve. Yes, 
their project is still a go. They, they've adapted to whatever it is. Maybe they were planning maybe to do something in person because they thought they could do an in-person concert. And now oh, it's a virtual experience or we're adding these extra elements that maybe weren't in the initial plan. So we've always had that mechanism in place. We just never really had to execute it so much. But I think the really great thing is that so many of our arts agencies are very creative and they have adapted and pivoted and created arts experiences virtually, take home. They've really made sure to continue their programming in one way or another throughout this last year. They have been amazing. So in fiscal year 2019, I haven't got the 2020 numbers, but I think a total of $110,500 was awarded to 28 arts agencies. What do the numbers look like for over 2020 or 2021 coming up? I guess you don't quite know yet because the numbers aren't in. Right. Well, and we are, um, we're kind of in the budget process for this coming year, the applicants that will, will be turned in. So It's been about the same. Thankfully, at least, you know, with our department's budget, we have $100,000 set aside for funding arts agencies. And then what we've done the last several years is have a distribution to augment that funding from our Columbia Arts Fund, which is the Arts Endowment Fund at the Community Foundation of Central Missouri. So that $100,000 has had a little boost Um, Like in 2019, you mentioned $10,500. I think this last year, uh, our advisory committee, so for 2021, um, they decided to not take out the maximum distribution, you know, because they're also thinking about growing the fund so that eventually we'll have even more to give back to agencies. I would say just on average, you know, between $5,000 and $10,000, somewhere between between those numbers has been what we've been able to add on to our 100,000 that goes out to agencies. And then, you know, from year to year as well, there might be more or less applicants. So we saw a few less applicants for FY21. You know, I think some, you know, it was like the beginning of the COVID months uh, looking ahead. And there was a couple that really might have decided, you know, we really can't plan and submit anything for a project that we don't even know what's going to be. So there was a couple um, that might have taken a step back just to have an off year of, you know, we don't even want to go through this process because it's just too much to um, to spend all the time working on something that might even just change too drastically. Um, and then, you know, sadly, there's a couple organizations that ended up dissolving in the last year. So that has also happened. I think back in 2007, when I first wrote the Columbia Art League's application for funding, I think there were maybe 18 arts agencies applying for around ninety six, ninety seven $97,000. And now we're up to, yeah, high 20s agencies and one hundred and five to 110000 So explain for us in a an acorn-sized nutshell, how the money is allocated. How do you decide which agency gets what amount of money? Right. So our Commission on Cultural Affairs, they serve as our panel for reviewing all the applications. Um, But we have a, a rubric that those commissioners follow for determining their scores. And then we have two funding meetings for the commission. One is in June and staff compiles all of the data and creates the average score for each applicant received. And if a organization scores below 60, they would 
not be considered for funding. You know, we have really strong applicants. So in my time, almost 10 years working with the office, I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen an average score even below 70. So um, at the June meeting, the commissioners with discussion and everything, they might change what they submitted. So we might make any adjustments. And then our funding is determined by kind of a mathematical calculation. So we take those average scores and we calculate it with the total funding that we have available. So the commissioners read all the applications, they allocate scores for different components of the application. Those are all added up. And then you apply a mathematical equation and cram as many as you can into that dollars $110,000 available. Right, right. I feel like we are going to be asking many of our arts organizations to exist in two realms for the foreseeable future. Some people are ready to be sitting in theatres and concert halls again, and others are going to want to continue enjoying the arts from their socially distanced sofas, which means Mm -hmm. really twice the workload for arts managers who are usually understaffed in the best of times, and now they've lost staff because they're trying to cut costs. What conversations are you having with our arts organisations locally about this two-realm world that we're going to be living in for a while and how they can manage it financially and and with the personnel. Right. Well, and that, I think now we're just, as plans are just starting to happen and we're seeing, you know, maybe some of the benefits of having content accessible on, online. I think there's a lot of things we can take away from from this period that will be perks going forward and how we present our programs. But yeah, I think I haven't had too many of those conversations, but it's something I've noted. And, you know, I think we're in a position here with the Office of Cultural Affairs where we're, we're trying to provide other resources, not just funding, but other professional development opportunities for these arts administrators on how they can manage this. So, you know, that might be a workshop that we provide. So we did uh, one the beginning of February called audience engagement during COVID-19. So what does that look like? Because our audiences this last year haven't been in person. They've been maybe virtual. And how do you now, how do you address this with audience engagement? That's always been something that a lot of agencies want to focus on, or they want to be growing their audience. And all of a sudden now, you know, how do you do that when, a lot of people might not be out and about in person and coming. How do you engage with them in that way? So, you know, we are, I think, seeing what the new challenges are. And I'm trying to find kind of ways that we can help them build their capacity by offering these other technical assistance types of things so that they can, you know, be equipped with those tools. And maybe I think another great way is, you know, using each other as a resource where we're reliant on our local community and networks um, and seeing what has worked for some organizations. But yeah, I, I, you know, we want to provide those spaces for those conversations to be had and for us to provide those resources. Well, with everybody struggling to find funding, I mean, it, it's true of the, the city too, and even at a state level. So Missouri Arts Council, I guess most of your funding comes from the city general fund, but the Office of right. Cultural Affairs, along with many arts organizations in the city, also receives additional funding from the Missouri Arts Council. So I'm curious for, for you, for the Office of Cultural Affairs, how competitive is that process for Missouri Arts Council money? Do you have to jump through the same kind of funding application hoops that the arts organizations do? 
Right. So we also are an applicant for Missouri Arts Council funding for our what I call our community arts programs. We have a number of other uh, programs that we do for the community. So uh, that's kind of how we utilize that. Um, and again, yes, it is, it is, I'm on the applicant end of that. Where we're, <laughs> we are then putting all the materials together um, and submitting them. Thankfully, you know, Missouri Arts Council hasn't taken, you know, of course, they're always wanting, they're always advocating for, for more funding to give out, but they haven't taken any hits to their budget so far. So they, they, at least they've maintained their their regular levels of funding for groups. There is, I mean, there, there's the $135 million in the American Rescue Plan that Biden has just announced, and that will go 40%, I believe, to regional arts councils and state agencies, and then 60% is directly awarded. That 40% that goes to the state agencies, do you see some of the trickle down from that? Potentially, you know, they also calculate their awards in a similar fashion with the scores and the funds available. So we have seen a fluctuation in our award amount from year to year. And I think that is due to how much they have allocated to the various programs for their funding programs. So yeah, so we could potentially see um, a little bit of a, a bump up. We, we have had a kind of a reduction in our award level the last year. So we could kind of get it bumped back up a little bit, potentially. It is always so complicated applying for any funding that is government raising. There's always a lot of a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of answers that need to be added in. And, and everyone wants the budget laying out slightly differently. I know. <laughs> it's hard. Well, I do appreciate all that you and your team do for the arts organizations and the arts generally in the city of Columbia. Sarah Dresser, Manager of the Office of Cultural Affairs, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and sharing your insights. Thank you very much. Having made my first masked, socially distanced theatre foray a few weeks ago and now closing in on being fully vaccinated, I am eyeing tentative theatre and performance plans like a child who has been locked out of the candy store for a year. It all feels so tantalisingly close. And yet, is it? One man who has had to spend the last 12 months sitting in that candy store with naught but empty jars and the faint whiff of vanished sugary delights for company is Quinn Gresham, the producing artistic director of the Lyceum Theatre in Ararok, who has just, somewhat tentatively, announced their upcoming season. Good morning, Quinn. Good morning, Diana. You have perfectly described the life that we have been living for a year in such a way that I don't know whether I should cry or eat. <laughs> um, a similar metaphor that we have regularly employed around here is that we are really sick and tired of running a shoe store that doesn't have any shoes to sell. Um, and for the first time in you know, a year, almost exactly, uh, we are starting to at least put shoes back on the shelf. And that is <laughs> such a wonderful feeling. I can't even begin to tell you. Imagining that first night when you walk into the theater and see people in seats and hear the buzz of conversation and theatrical anticipation. Do you anticipate being 
being quietly verkempt or just a howling, weepy and snotty mess? Oh, I think it, it will be uh, uh, fully all over my sleeve. Um, <laughs> I, 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 even imagining that moment is an emotional experience today. So I, I really can't I can't begin to claim that I will repress any feelings uh, that, 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 that I'll be having in that moment. I mean, it, it, it one of the really, I think, rewarding things about this this period of time, and I hate to say that because I know this period of time has been devastating for so many people, but I'm, I'm obligated to look for some sort of silver lining. Um, one of the things that we've really discovered here is how much the theater means to our audience. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, as a result of reaching out to people every single time we've had to change their ticketing, we've gotten to have great and lengthy conversations uh, with people who really take great ownership in the Lyceum Theater. And and we have those conversations during normal times, uh, very quickly at the theater, but never in depth as much as we've been able to do during this time. And, and it's been incredibly inspiring to know that the Lyceum is, in fact, so very important to people uh, for so many different reasons. Uh, getting that reactivated and, and making that theater available to those people again is... I cannot even count the seconds quick enough. <laughs> well, I loved the little video you put out this week. I always feel like you're talking just to me. I think you and Michelle Obama might have gone to the same speaking to the camera class. Were you in the same class? <laughs> we, we weren't. I, 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 I think I probably didn't. I probably got kicked out of that class. But <laughs> I don't think so. Well, and it's about the plans for your upcoming season, at which you've pushed back to an August start date rather than I think usually you start in June. And like everyone else, you're gazing into this murky crystal ball and trying to conjure forth the ghost of theatre yet to come to find out what on earth you can do. And I'm sure you looked at many options before deciding on that August start date. Take us through some of the discussions you were having to open the theatre, keep everybody safe and, and recognise all those great patrons that you have who really want the theatre to open again. Yeah, there there are lots of steps to this process. One of the, one of the first ones was... Uh, we, we've already delayed our season. We've delayed it twice now, I think. And we wanted to be able to live up to the tickets that we sold for 2020. So in order to do that, we need to do the same shows. We need to have a full apples to apples comparison. And the only way that we could get all of those shows in before our, this is crazy to even say out loud, before our 2022 season began would be if we could open mid-August. That was the last possible moment that we could squeeze everything in. So that was step one. That's our apples to apples comparison. That allows us to do all of the shows that we had hoped to do in 2020, that many generous people either donated their tickets back or moved their tickets to whenever we were able to do the show. Uh, step two here is figuring out how people are feeling about returning to live events. And this is the guesswork part. We read a lot of surveys and statisticians are making an attempt to quantify this, but nobody knows. And for us, the the availability, the growing availability of uh, vaccines in the area seemed to point toward a time where we would be able to gather comfortably again. And yet unknown is how our friends at Actors' Equity Association are going to make this possible or not. We believe that the uh, the guidance from Actors' Equity Association will be <laughs> operating in tandem with vaccine rollout and eventual herd immunity. We don't know that for a fact, but we believe that that, that should be the case. And all of those things tell us that, yeah, mid-August, might it might just work. 
And more than might just work. We really believe that that that, that is a realistic possibility. Otherwise, we wouldn't have announced it. Um, there are still 5,000 caveats like everything that we ever talk about anymore. All of the things that could come up that might change that. And so I've given you all of those logistical things that we've considered. But then really, <laughs> the, the ultimate decision maker is whether it's safe or not. And if it turns out it isn't, then we won't. I mean, it, it really is that simple. And we've tried to make a very clear case to our audience members that if, in fact, they purchase a ticket and we have to make a change again, that they needn't worry about losing that money. <laughs> we're we're going to either make use of it or or return it. This is not something where we're looking to take advantage of anybody. We're just on an ever-shifting landscape and... Uh, Hopeful that we've got something figured out more than anything. So I don't have to do one more earnest to the camera appeal, speaking directly to Diana. Um, <laughs> here, here's the next change. I mean, the Actors' Equity Association is an interesting extra dynamic that you have to consider as an equity theatre, that maybe local theatres don't have to think in the same way. So no matter what the situation is on the ground here, you are also dealing with a national body who is ensuring that their actors are safe. How does that work? What extra hoops do you have to jump through for the Equity Association? Well, it, again, this is an ever-changing process. Uh, currently, uh, you fill out a fairly lengthy safety guidelines application that will be approved or not, um, sent back with uh, revisions that are necessary, etc. And once that is approved provisionally, <laughs> then I believe contracts are able to be issued. And then as of today, to my understanding, three or four days before the actual event, would start rehearsals, the union would authorize that production. Now, that I think will have changed by August. That seems a little unfair to say that we're going to really wait till, you know, four days prior to the actual event. This is a tricky thing. I, I'm, I'm a proud member of Actors' Equities Association, and I'm very grateful that early on in this process, particularly, equity really stood up for the safety of its members because... Look, there were always going to be producers. Uh, there were, actually, um, <laughs> who went forward with things that maybe ha weren't safe for their actors, technicians, uh, directors, designers, etc. And I, I, I'm grateful that Equity stepped in, hired an epidemiologist, and really got to work on plans. We're now reaching a point, though, where I think conditions may be very different in different parts of the country. And uh, we're hopeful that there will be some nuance uh, in the understanding of the various different locales. Uh, doing a Broadway show is very different than doing a show in Arrow Rock, for example. And uh, once, uh, hopefully, if everybody that wants to come work for us has received their vaccine, that at least takes care of the health and safety, largely, of our, our staff. Now, we still have to figure out the audience, um, but we, we are at least in control of our, of our staff. And uh, just knowing that there is a possibility to do that is very encouraging for us. Well, in a normal year, you would have been up in New York in January casting actors for the season, but I'm guessing that wasn't the case this year. How have you done the casting for this year's season? Well, because we already did it for 2020, I explained, uh, I called each of the company members that we'd hired individually, gosh, in... <laughs> When was that? Sometime in 2020, <laughs> I don't know, to say that when we start putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, you get the first phone call. So everybody got the first right of refusal. And uh, thus far, everybody's really excited to get back to it. That really has shown no difficulty and we have no uh, dearth of open positions here. So so that's all good. Uh, that 
you know, it could change by August. It will, and I'm sure in some capacity, but we'll keep rolling with the punches. That will, That's what we do. That's what this year has really taught us to do. We've been at boot camp for uh, rolling with the punches. Well, I mean, usually you're employing actors during their summer season when they wouldn't be on national tours or performing in larger cities. But this year, your season goes well into the fall and then continues into the spring. And of course, we don't know what's going to happen on Broadway or at a national level, but it does lock some of those actors out of those bigger runs. How are they going to navigate that or is it not an issue? Well, who knows if those bigger things are even happening? Uh, it's really hard to know. And I think, I think particularly as it relates to the 2022 programming that we now have, uh, in the, in the early spring, things could very well change as of today. It's fine. Of course, as of today, there's not a lot of work yet. I'm hopeful that by the beginning of 2022, there's lots of work for people. And look, if I have to make some changes from a casting perspective or from a technical staffing perspective, because somebody got a job, boy, that's a great moment. Um, because everybody's been out of work. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's heartbreaking to know how many of my theater friends have not been able to to work at all in a lot of ways. I mean, there there have been extraordinary pivots among many of them, but then others for whom their survival job was also shut down by the shutdown. And it, it's I, 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 I this is this sounds so Pollyanna to say, but at this point, I don't care where anybody's working as as long as everybody's working. What are you hearing about the restart dates for Broadway and touring shows? Oh, you hear different things. There's the the push by de Blasio, uh, de Blasio, I always say that, I always make it a G instead of an S, to uh, to vaccinate theater workers in the fall so things can begin in September. Um, I, I, I really don't know. that the, the level of strategy that has to be employed to get a show working in New York is just unfathomable for me. There's just an awful lot to consider there and audiences coming from all over the world. Right. Well, tell us quickly about the season you have planned. What shows do you have coming up? Well, it's it's the one that we keep planning. Uh, <laughs> it seems like year after year, our, our Groundhog's Day uh, season will begin with Disney's The Little Mermaid. We have a terrific cast lined up uh, that will be directed and choreographed by Sam Hay, who's done a number of wonderful things for us, including Footloose, uh, Susical. He did All Shook Up for us in 2019. And then after that, we have Singing in the Rain, which is, of course, based on the, the, the classic film and features all of those great numbers that are in that movie. That's going to be directed by a gentleman named Drew Humphrey. And Drew was last with us in our production of Crazy For You, playing the the male lead in that show. He's a terrific hoofer, but also a great uh, director with a lot of experience with Singing in the Rain. So we're really looking forward to having him here and also to helping. Well, he's not going to do this. I shouldn't give him credit for this. But we're, we, <laughs> he, he at least has had some experience seeing the rain fall from the rafters in productions of Singing in the Rain. Uh, Ryan J. Zerngebel, our resident technical director, will have to actually figure out how to make it rain. But that 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 will be a part of the show. Um, and then after that, we have the Lyceum premiere of Sister Act, the musical based on the Whoopi Goldberg film. And then we have Murder on the Orient Express, which is the fairly new stage adaptation of the Agatha Christie story written by Ken Ludwig or adapted by Ken Ludwig, I should say. We will be the first professional theater in Missouri to produce it. That was at least true in 2020. I think it's still true in 2021. 
And then, because we've we've messed up the order of things, then it will be time for A Christmas Carol, which is now smack dab in the middle of our season rather than at the end of it. And that, that gets us to December. We're going to take January and February uh, to, <laughs> to cast and hire personnel for our upcoming 2022 summer season. We need a little bit of time to get that done. And then we'll be back in March with Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Brandon Thomas's Charlie's Aunt, uh, which was in the Lyceum's first season, and then Elvis the Musical. Uh, this will be definitely the Missouri professional premiere. It might still be the U.S. professional premiere of this new version of Elvis the Musical, I think. And that gets us through April. And really, at that point, we jump up, we spin, and it's time for whatever is going to open the 2022 summer season. Wow, that's that's a <laughs> fast turnaround, a lot to do. As well as being the producing artistic director for the Lyceum Theatre, you're also an actor. But besides A Christmas Carol, you're mostly an administrator. Do you get pangs of envy when you see people on the stage? Oh, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> I would so much rather see other people on stage. And and look, I, I will tell you this as if no one's listening. I, I'm the cheapest actor that we ever hire. <laughs> Uh, I, I only do that uh, first uh, as a budgetary measure because I don't pay my 